Welcome to the latest podcast from the London Institute of Banking and Finance, lifelong partners for financial education. Learn more about our qualifications at www.libf.ac.uk. Let me, first of all, uh, welcome all of our speakers. I'm delighted that uh, we've got such a distinguished panel. Uh, we, the, the running order is going to be slightly different uh, from your, from your programme. I've asked Mike Trippett uh, to defend the dinosaurs. Uh, Mike has been around the financial services sector for 30, 30 odd years. Um, he's seen these disruptors come and go. Uh, he's going to tell us, at least I hope, why many of the, uh, many of the assumptions that the disruptors make uh, about the stupidity and cupidity of our high street banks is probably, probably not really fair. Uh, so he gets to go first and then pe people can, as it were, react to, to what he has to say. Tom Blomfield, uh, who is, uh, I suppose, as near to a unicorn as uh, we have in the UK, uh, will then kick off, as it were, for the disruptors. Bridget, Bridget Rosewell, um, who straddles, I guess, um, both conventional uh, banking and the disruptors, uh, now is the chair of Atom Bank, will go third. Uh, John Hitchens, um, who was for many years the uh, lead banking partner at uh, PwC, then absconded to uh, Aldermore. We'll talk a little bit about Aldermore, which is a, a, both a disruptor and a niche disruptor, but very different from uh, some of the others. And Jason Maud, uh, who actually understands coding, uh, can back clean up because he doesn't have a jacket on. I'm Andrew Hilton. Um, that's the panel. Um, there are, this, this is unusual in being uh, not under the Chatham House rule. Mm. Uh, it is actually being recorded, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't intervene. Do feel free to intervene. Each of the speakers gets to talk for 10, 15 minutes. I'm not going to stop them. Uh, we'll have a chance for a few questions to each speaker after he or she has spoken, and then we'll have, I hope, a Q&A afterwards. A couple of first things. Hands up who's got a, Mondex, uh, a Monzo card. <laughs> <clears throat> Hands up. Anybody got a Starling account? <laughs> Atom Bank. Okay, well, so, you know, Monzo's ahead of the... Oh, let's, let's think. Barclays? Yeah. <laughs> um, you're ahead of the game, Tom. Thank you. Okay, uh, other than... Well, there are no, no rules, so do feel free to, uh, to make your views... To make your views known, I give you first of all, first of all, Mike, who spent, as I say, uh, as an, uh, year thirty odd years as an analyst with Warburg, Schroders, HSBC, Oriel, Numis, uh, and is an expert on the investability of banks. Amongst other things, I'd like to know which ones of these he's invested in. Mike, the floor is yours. Th Andrew, thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. Um, thank you all for coming along. Um, I. Um, so I want to just take 10, 15 minutes just to set out how I see uh, I, the market overall. Um, and I would, I, I guess I would summarize, if I had to summarize the next few years, then it would be a period of transformation uh, moving from, I think, from product focus to customer focus. And in my 30, as Andrew said, odd years, some were more odd than others, I can assure you, as an analyst covering this sector, I feel like I've heard this in the past. But I do, think, um, I do think I would accept readily that, that the situation is changing, and I just want to address how I think the banks are facing up to this. I think in the past, customer focus was often measured as number of product cross-sells. 
Now I think it is about providing some genuine choice. Uh, customers need choice. Uh, they need choice in products, how they interface with the banks, and I believe that they need advice. But I think the speed of transformation is, is going to rest on a number of factors. I think the factors to consider, I mean, there is actually a lot of product competition in the retail banking market now, but it is about products rather than, I, I, rather than about customer relationships. Um, the market is a scale market, one and a half trillion of residential mortgages outstanding. And according to the last stats from IMLA, about 90% of mortgages are now generated through the broker market. So I think it's fair to say that the banks probably don't own the mortgage relationship anymore. They sort of borrow it for a couple of years. The real relationship is with the, uh, is with the broker. And I think in, in terms of consumer credit as well, a 200 billion market, I see that as very price driven, but perhaps linked to the personal current account. And deposits as well, very much price driven, and perhaps to some extent safety or, or, or brand driven as well. It tied in with this though, I think um, customers, may not be all retail customers, but certainly I think SME and corporate customers need a stable banking system. The stable banking system is a profitable system. Uh, it doesn't always work the other way. Profitable does not necessarily mean stable. But when banks are profitable, they are stable. Not my words, actually the Canadian Bankers Association words. Hong Kong Monetary Authority has a similar view. You have to have profitable banks to have a stable banking system. Um, there is also, I think, a very distinct trade-off between uh, stability and competition. I think some consultants have tried to measure what is the price of a stable banking system. Well, the price is that it may be less competitive than many would like. Um, <clears throat> when, so just this point on, on profitability, when TSB came to the market, when it IPO'd in 2014, the Treasury asked the CMA, the Competition and Markets Authority, to say, will TSB be an effective challenger? Um, the short answer was no, initially. The CMA came back and said, well, to be an effective challenger, we need scale, uh, we need the ability to offer a breadth of products, ability to innovate, differentiate, but also the bank needs to generate profit to invest in growth in the future. And so um, at that point, there was an additional mortgage portfolio injected into Lloyd's, uh, from Lloyd's into TSB to make TSB more profitable so it could actually grow and develop. So it's important we have healthy competition, um, but this is, <coughs> this is so far the product market is a scale market. Um, and profitability matters and, and stability matters. The first key message, um, as Andrew asked me to defend the dinosaurs, but the words are already written here. Um, we mustn't underestimate the financial horsepower of the existing banks and the ability of these banks to innovate and adapt um, to acquire where it's required. Um, I've looked, you know, if I look at all of the retail banking operations of the major banks, they're all making pretty strong double-digit returns on either equity or, or allocated capital. Um, if I take the four banks um, and I include Santander UK, I include CYBG and Virgin combined now, and I include Nationwide, these banks collectively made about 10 billion sterling attributable profit last year. That is quite a war chest uh, to support growth or additional investment. And so, you know, we're seeing this starting to come through. Just some examples. Lloyd's has talked about a $3 billion investment in digitizing the bank. It has 
between 15 and 16 million customers are already digitally active. Nationwide's taken a stake in 10x, more for business banking, admittedly, but nevertheless, that investment's been made. CYBG, a couple of million customers now on its IB platform. And RBS is, um, has also made an investment in Bo. There's just a, you know, a few examples. So on a five-year view, given we're looking out to 2025, I mean, I don't see this momentum waning. I see the, the capital generation of the existing banks as being uh, very, very strong. And, you know, as I say, the ability to innovate, adapt, adopt, um, very significant. Now, uh, the pushback, or, or, or maybe some will say, well, actually, it's this double-digit profitability that is of interest, and it's based around two things, uh, the significance of the personal current account. I don't think that's anyone would deny that, actually. Um, the FCA has recently said, you know, that it's talked about the importance of the personal current account. And going back to my TSB example, the CMA also said that a base in personal current accounts from which to grow is, is, is absolutely crucial. A lot of transactional banking fees attached. Um, but PCAs are only an advantage, really, if you've got somewhere to lend the, the funding, if you on-lend the funding. Um, the FCA highlighted that the personal current accounts, um, just over 50% of those customers had credit cards associated with that current account with their existing provider. So I think the personal current account, I would accept, is a key relationship product. Um, it's, it's part of the um, existing bank's funding structure, and I can see that it is a prize uh, for new entrants into the market. But how they monetize it is something I, you know, I'll be interested to hear. There's also a regulatory advantage, I think, that we probably now has been reasonably well publicized. If I, if I look at the Lloyds Bank's retail business 20 years ago, made a high 20% ROE, um, and its it margins were way higher than they are now. Um, if I look at the retail banking business last year, it made a sort of low 20% ROE, not a huge difference, but margins are way lower, return on assets way lower, the equity requirement way higher. But the difference really is the risk density of those assets. The mix hasn't changed, but the risk weighting of those assets has come from about 66% down to below 30. So the, there is a regulatory advantage to those who are on the IRB system. I happen to think that it's appropriate that challenges remain standardized for a period of time. And I hate to say it, but you know, Metro Bank has not done anything to change my view uh, <laughs> on, on that subject. So am I saying that the challenges won't succeed? No, I'm not, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, well, first of all, I don't like the challenger bank phrase very much. In fact, I don't like the challenger in incumbent phraseology. I think some basic industrial economics required here. You either got to be scale, and if you're going to be scale, you better, you better mean it in terms of breadth and depth of product offerings, or I think more niche. The middle ground, I think, is tough. CYBG and Virgin Money worked that out. CYBG worked this out fairly quickly uh, after IPOing. Um, I would say, and uh, John's going to speak later, but Aldermore, the bank I know reasonably well, has been very, very successful in pursuing a number of niches in, in parallel. Um, but the question is, how, where do I think, how, how do I think the sector will transform, and where, where will the uh, how will the existing uh, players perform and how will the new entrants perform? So what are the, what are the differentiators? Um, I regard technology as necessary but not sufficient. Uh, um, 
I think that you know we're all in varying forms now used to using this <coughs> for banking or for booking restaurants or for holidays or flights. Um, I don't see um, that that of itself is a differentiator. I don't think I will judge an airline. I would judge an airline service by frequency of flights, by price, by service, and not by the technology or the app involved in, in, in booking the flight. Um, it's no good saying, Mr. Trippett, we've landed in Edinburgh, in, but not in Dusseldorf, um, but we have a really cool app. Uh, that's not going to cut it for me. Um, <clears throat> I think that... Um, so I, I think that, that technology is, is something that can be grown, it can be acquired. Uh, I don't feel that tech of, of its own is the, is the answer. So where do, I see, um, where do I see the edges? I think you know, customer service is one area. I've, I've mentioned Metro Bank, but actually Metro Bank is one bank. I think it probably has the lowest funding costs in the sector, but it's been very successful in the switcher market. So sort of back to basics, banking service through the branch. Value-added products, wealth management, and insurance, I think, sit fairly neatly alongside deposit gathering. But if I see really the differentiator in moving from products to customers, it is the information advantage. Um, if I go back to the FCA review of the mortgage market, it said, look, it basically it's functioning pretty well, but more could be done to provide the tools and the analysis for customers to really decide what is the right mortgage for them. I can see more holistic money management advisory um, uh, providing a choice of products. I think you know, banks are uh, stuffed full of data, of customer information in their warehouses, but very little, I think, is used proactively. I think more that, that can be done there. Um, and I think part of this is to do with the information advantages, the blurring of the lines between payment systems and credit cards. But the, you know, the question is, how is the service paid for? And, and do, do these platform providers remain separate to the traditional bank's lending activities um, or, or part of it? But overall, developing an information advantage, I think, is, is the key. If I'm going to look at the next five years, um, it would be wrong not to think about the credit cycle. We almost, it's sort of a sort of phrase we don't talk about these days. I mean, there are signs of, uh, clear signs of increased consumer indebtedness. Um, we're not at post crisis peaks yet, but we're getting close. Debt servicing costs are low because of where interest rates are. There's a lot of competition in the mortgage market, but we haven't yet stress tested in real life retail banking models. There's been Bank of England stress testing, but there hasn't been real life stress testing. So my conclusions, um, I think the existing players uh, will remain uh, as major players. Um, I don't believe that all of the challenger banks, I can't say the same for them on a five-year view. I started to count the challenger banks today. I think I got to 40 and I wasn't halfway through the alphabet. You know, there's a lot of competition out there, but something tells me, I think we'll have the existing players combating quite hard amongst themselves. And I think we'll have the challengers combating quite hard amongst themselves as well. Um, but the major players will be different, of course, having um, adapted, adopted, and reinvested. And I think consolidation will continue. Um, we've seen mergers with CYBG, Virgin Money, One Savings Bank, Charter Corp. We've seen market entry, first round in Aldermore, Sabadell, TSB. And we're starting to see partnerships forming as well. Starling Bank Post Office, as an example. Um, so, yes, it is a slightly a party political broadcast on behalf of the in incumbent party. But I do think that 
it's a you know it's a, it's an industry that's going through change, but I do see that the major banks will adapt and adopt. Okay, I have one question before I open it up for you. You you mentioned the uh, the credit cycle. You mentioned that, that this is going to be a somewhat more hostile, or at least less supportive environment that banks are going to go into over the next uh, next next I suppose two to five years. I mean, could you expand a little bit on that? Are you seeing the signs of strain already? Um, <clears throat> only in the sense of what the numbers are telling us. Household debt, about 125% of household income. Um, we've seen it 144 since the, the crisis, um, but we're creeping back up. Um, we've got a huge amount of competition in the mortgage market. I think everyone in the room would accept that. We've got a lot of liquidity chasing yield. That sounds familiar. Um, we've got trapped liquidity within the ring fence banks that I think many of the banks have talked about. So there is a lot of competition in the mortgage market. Spreads are quite tight. The differentials between 75-90% LTV pricing is quite tight. So a lot of asset generation going on at a low point in the cycle. If, you know, rates are going to move up. We can all argue about when and how, but it feels like there'll be a move up this year and next year. We just simply haven't seen that played out. Uh, we've seen Bank of England stress tests, but we've not seen it really in the numbers. Ultimately, we do need, we need a stable banking system. We need a profitable banking system. We want healthy competition. Um, the, the switcher market, the switcher guarantee service was put in place in 2013. I've not monitored the stats annually. Uh, the last set of stats showed you know, some significant wins for uh, some of the guys sat to my right here and some significant losses for the incumbents. But you know, uh, I, and I don't want to be demeaning about it, but we're talking thousands of moves either way in a customer base that's sort of 15 to 20 million for some of these banks. So, you know, it's, 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 I, I, you know, I don't see that the facility is there for switching, but I'm not seeing it perhaps on the scale that I, I perhaps would have expected. That's because there's not much difference between Lloyd's and Barclays. There is, however, a big difference between Lloyd's and Monzo, Starling, Atom. Tom, how do you respond to that? Tom Blomfield. Thank you very much. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, and I, I agreed with a lot of it, um, that the, the large, uh, especially incumbent banks, really focus on financial products, not customers, and the cross-sale of those products, especially when, even when they're not the best products for customers. I think we, everyone talks about becoming more customer-centric. It's often just words. And we heard from Mike, ROE, standardised model, funding costs, mortgages, mortgages, mortgages. <laughs> and this is, I think the people from big banks continually say we need to be more customer focused and then just revert back to a product focus. Mortgages. How many mortgages did you sell last year, Monzo? Zero. Ah, uh, not really a bank. I think the root of this is like, what is a bank? And sort of who cares? Genuinely, like, who is asking the question and what do they care about? I think when big um, retail, big legacy retail banks talk about it, they mean massive balance sheet products. And they say, we don't think you're going to make a dent in massive balance sheet products. Like, great, we actually, we agree then. What we care about is the customer relationship. We care about um, providing a service. And I, banks even talk about owning the customer. I think is a hideous phrase. I think we provide a service to our customers, and if we're very, very good, they, they grace us with their loyalty. If we remain trustworthy, 
and provide an amazing service, they will continue to grace us with, with their custom. And we focus a lot on um, the things people care about every day. It's sort of interesting analogy with sort of, you wouldn't, you'd be a bit upset if you took an airline and, and it you know, dumped you in the wrong place, but the mobile app was pretty good. That's because you experience an airline in a very different way to experiencing a bank. Like I don't go to my bank to, for the branch. I actually don't go to the bank for the mortgage or the, even the financial products. I'm the bank to get out of my fucking way so I can do the things that I really care about in my life. The big banks seem to treat customers as an in, inconvenient afterthought. So get the money off them or get the mortgage originated and then sort of go away and we can, we can make the money off the mortgage. And I think it results in all of these perverse outcomes where you're flogging poor products to people who don't really need them. And I think we need to flip it on its head. So that's what I want to talk about in a more positive note. What does flipping on its head really look like? Well, for the last 15 years, what we've seen is a disaggregation. So rather than signing up kids in the playground by handing out footballs to open kids' accounts and then cross-selling them crappy products, we've had a disaggregation of point solutions doing one thing really, really well. TransferWise doing foreign exchange, Zopa doing peer-to-peer -peer lending, Funding Circle, Revolut, uh, Starling, Monzo, people doing one thing really, really well. The issue, I mean, that's really, really good because customers get great choice, great customer service often, and really, really good price competition. It's very good. But maintaining 15 or 20 different relationships when actually you don't care about the underlying product, you just want to live your life, is a real pain. And so I think after this wave of disaggregation, what we get is a re-aggregation around sort of hubs and, and spokes, where a hub, I think naturally a current account is a hub, that you access on a daily or multiple times a day. And it sort of helps you. And how do you experience it? Probably through your phone. Probably that you don't actually go into a branch, but you, you access it multiple times a day through your phone and, and the interface really, really does matter. Um, and the spokes, I think, are the balance sheet products. And frankly, I don't really care where they come from. As like for, for example, a savings account. As long as it's government guaranteed and I get easy access and it's a good interest rate, I don't care where it sits. I just want a good rate. Just take care of it for me. Or my gas and electricity. I, don't, I actually don't care where it comes from. Maybe I care that it's green or sustainable, but ultimately it's the same gas and electricity. Or my car insurance. I just need to be insured, basically. I don't really care about the underlying product. I just want it to get out of my way and just work. And so I think the role of the hub is to provide this amazing, seamless customer experience, delightful um, user journeys, and give you access to all of the best products and services out there without you having to lift a finger. And I totally agree with Mike that the, the data advantage is really key here. Because understanding the real world of identity of the customer, so you've done KYC effectively and you can help them onboard into new products without them having to lift a finger, and then looking at the transaction data and metadata to figure out which products are most relevant at the right point in time, lets you save customers loads of time and money. Like think about all the pricing mechanics in car insurance. You sign up, get a great rate. Everyone knows you're going to get ripped off after a year. Flip the price up. What if you're, this is where it comes to the question of like, what is a bank? For me, I want someone making sure I'm not ripped off in a year. What is that product called? Price, ins like insurance price protection? And sounds like a mis-selling scandal. But I want, I want a service that looks out for all of the things I'm spending on and making sure I'm broadly optimizing everything the right way. And it doesn't have to be the absolute best price at all points in time, to make sure I'm not getting ripped off, right? And let me go about my day to day life and do the things I care about. Same with mortgages. I actually don't care where my mortgage sits. I just want to make sure that it's a reasonable rate. And in three years when I need to remortgage, it's done with zero hassle. I don't need to print out a stack of papers and post it to some new bank. So 
in that sense, we're sort of agreeing. I think the banks really focus on these big balance sheet products and who's going to provide them and whether they're going to be a standardised model or an internal model and capital sort of requirements, return on equity. It's like, I just don't care, actually. I want a service for me as a customer that makes all that pain go away and gets me a great deal. Maybe that's not a bank. And sort of, so what is a bank and who cares? I think that's a fundamental question here. So I think you'll see this bifurcation between hubs, which are brands and customer service and user experience, and spokes, which are commodity financial sort of balance sheet products, where broadly price competition is going to drive margins lower and lower and lower. That's fine. And that's great. for That competition is really, really good. Um, so I'll wrap up by asking a few questions, which I will not answer. Uh, <laughs> perhaps leave that for Q&A. And sort of what level of um, disaggregation or consolidation actually makes sense. Once you've got this hub and a great set of products, does the hub start acquiring the spokes? Or does it make sense for the spokes to remain independent? D is there one just mega spoke, one mega balance sheet provider that does all of the balance sheet products? Uh, Goldman Sachs Marcus springs to mind, honestly. Super, super efficient, no branches, great new technology, massive balance sheet leverage. Could they just be a big fat spoke? Um, how do the big banks react to this? I think they're trying to do both the... the um, customer experience, the brand, but without really doing customer experience well. They're trying to do the balance sheet without the operating efficiency to make it cost effective. And so their prices are never market leading. <clears throat> Is it big tech? Do, do Apple, or especially with the announcement yesterday, does Apple come in and try and be this hub? Um, can the model, can this hub and spoke model ever be profitable? Um, finally, if these hubs are, and they might not be even regulated banks in the future, but if they are banks, how are they regulated and what risks do they pose? Because it's not it's not credit risk, really. It's not even a liquidity risk. We have, our liquidity ratio is, is insane. We have 98% of our cash held in, in overnight cash at the Bank of England. It's really insane. Um, so it's probably not credit risk that will kill us. It's probably not sort of li liquidity crunch either. It's more of a sort of op risk kind of systemic, this kind of systemic op risk that payments schemes face, actually. Sort of interesting, will a regulator let a bank get that big that double-digit percentage of the population are using it, over half the population is using it? What, ha what happens if 90% of the population is using one of these payment sort of hub banks? There's no, the credit risk we're not worried about, the liquidity risk we're not worried about, we're really, really worried about IT systems risk. Um, so those are the questions I think will be really interesting, um, and I will leave it there. I think that's absolutely fascinating, but I love the idea that uh, the idea is, you know, make the pain go away. I have a sort of vision of ibuprofen bank. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of the hub and spoke, I mean, I, I'm sure that there are other people who want to know more about what, which spokes you really, you know, what, you're the hub. How many, five years from now, how many spokes, if, if you're still not, if you haven't been bought by Goldman Sachs, yep. five years from now, what will be those spokes? I think you can divide them into probably 20 or 30 verticals. And within each vertical, you probably have dozens or 100 different providers. So an example might be savings accounts. You split that into easy access, fixed term, ISA. That's just in savings. And there are 20 banks providing those savings accounts. Then you've got investments. Uh, so Fidelity, BlackRock, Vanguard. You've got gas and electricity. You've got mortgages and all the different kinds of mortgages. You've got home broadband, mobile phone, car insurance, contents insurance, travel insurance, pet insurance, life insurance. You can go on and on and on. So uh, retailer cashback, loyalty discounts, I think, is an entire whole area. I, I can go on. I think there are a lot. I think it's incredibly complicated. And you take, you take a very small commission on each of those? Yes, or... 
some service fee, whether it's a commission from the provider or a subscription paid by the user, I think we're figuring that out. Um, but yes, you take a you take a margin on each without without bearing balance sheet risk, and so it ends up capital light. So your ROE ends up not double digits but triple digits. Um, I think there are I mean there are design considerations that actually a lot of I don't actually think people want a totally open marketplace. I don't think they want a hundred things. I think they just want the one thing that's close enough to the cheapest and they don't have to think about it actually. So I've used the phrase marketplace banking in the past and I stopped using it because when you say marketplace banking, people think of like money saving expert, here are the 20 best savings account or eBay. And it's like, I have to scroll through pages and pages. I don't think people want that. I think people want just like, just gas electricity, make sure I never have to think about it again. If I'm within about 10% of the cheapest and I never have to think about it, I'll definitely take that. I don't know. A fun story. I signed up. I, I moved house a few years ago, um, and I signed up for this service, which claimed that if I gave my new address and my bank details, they would take care of everything, like my council tax, my water, gas, and electricity, home broadband. So this is amazing. I'll sign up. I gave them my bank details. I said, great, awesome. But it was one of these like um, MV, like kind of do things that don't scale, kind of early stage startup that took my details, and I was like, this is great. I never have to think about it again. And so all of the letters that came in the post, I shredded. It's like. I actually don't do this anymore. I've got the service that deals with it for me. I just literally didn't read them until the bailiffs turned up. Yeah. Genuinely, because I hadn't, because actually this was startup had failed and not told me, uh, and I hadn't paid my council tax for a year. Uh, a cautionary tale. How many customers do you have whose primary financial relationship is with you? So 30% of our active accounts are salaried. That's up from 10% a year ago. If you actually go and ask customers which one of our investors did recently, first of all, they ask, what are all the cards you have in your wallet? So you, they name their cards. And then they ask each customer, of all those cards, which is your primary account? 50% of Monzo customers, or rather 50% of people who have a Monzo card say, Monzo is my primary account, even though only about 30% of them um, actually put their salary in. So I think that's a different way of thinking about what is my main account um, that bodes very well for us. We'll, so salary has gone from 10 to 30%. In the next year, I see it going to about 45, 50%. Um, so that was the the... Every year, there's sort of a, a refrain. One, it's like, you're just a prepaid card. You'll never launch a bank account. It's like, okay, we did that. It's not people's main account. Um, we did that. Now, it is the, the main account for, by some measures, between 30 and 50% of our customers. The next one is, hey, you make no revenue. It's like, yeah, we, we make about 30 or 40 million pounds of revenue a year, which is less than our cost and we are loss-making. Um, the path to profitability is the next challenge, as well as growing customers, clearly, is to grow revenue. So this, in the next 12 months, uh, Revenue is forecast to grow by about 600%, uh, which, well, again, is quite to profitability, but we keep reinvesting in growth. And at the moment, uh, capital, private capital markets are very, very buoyant, um, and we are very well capitalized for the future. So that's a, an approach we're pretty happy with. I think you could flip the dial, stop investing in marketing, stop signing up customers. You get to profitability pretty quickly. But I think you end up with a very small slice of the pie rather than a, a larger slice. Um, so profitability is probably two or three years out still. Um, but we have hundreds of millions of, of capital. Okay, Bridget, um, amongst other things, you know, you're an economist, so you, you, you view this uh, uh, not only from the inside, but from 15,000 feet as well. <laughs> I'm a recovering economist. Actually, <laughs> um, and it says here I come from a different generation. I think that's a bit of an ageist comment, but never mind. <laughs> that, so I'm the only person with grey hair on this panel. No. <laughs> but, um, oh, apart from, yes. Oh, I haven't sorry. got hair. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, 
<clears throat> and I suppose that does give me, though, a, um, a broader perspective, and that I'd like to start by going back, if you like, um, because, I, and I, because I agree with Tom that the big question here is, what's a bank? What is it actually that we're talking about? Uh, are we talking about what customers, or what we think customers want out of a financial services industry? Or are we talking about the way in which we, uh, the, the questions of stability and competition, if you like, as, as Mike um, could have phrased it. And if I go back to when I first had a bank account, long years ago, then uh, I didn't quite know what it was for really, actually, except I felt I had to have one. And if, if I did all my transactions in cash. If anybody remembers going to the bank every week, you got some cash out and then you spent it during the week and then you got some more out the following week. And you stopped doing that and you use cash and you use checks because you had a debit card. So all of that sort of money management piece was indeed about that immediate transaction, how I actually manage my daily life, how I pay my bills, how I make sure my bills are paid. And that is the piece where the technology has changed the most as we've gone into these things. And you know, when was the last time you paid for a cup of coffee other than by tapping for it? Um, though you can't do that very easily in the US, it's much harder, in fact, on the other side of the pond in, in spite of their scale and, and so on. So that piece of it, we sort of know that customers got used to paying for things in a very different way. I'm not sure that they've got used or they really even know what kind of a financial service they want on those longer term choices. Now, it may be that they know they want a mortgage and they want the mortgage to be the cheapest and they're going to churn it every couple of years. But actually, the touch point that you then get with, your, with the provider of that mortgage to whom you are paying the, the, the monthly payment then actually becomes a different kind of relationship and actually can undermine potentially the way you might think about a hub and spoke. We're very proud at Atom of our, our Trustpilot ratings, which are uniformly five star. We do a lot of work on making sure that our customers like what we do. We don't have as many because we've gone, we've started in the other place, if you like. We've started with the balance sheet because that seemed to be what a bank did, bring in money, lend it out. That immediately takes you, of course, down a much more um, invasive, shall we say, regulatory route. And um, I, you know, I actually fundamentally disagree with you, Mark, about, Mike, about the, uh, the, the challenges of IRB. The challenge for Metro isn't that it had IRB, it didn't. It's the challenge that they got the calculation wrong, and many, many banks have done that in the past. But it's certainly a it's a disincentive to do kind of standard, to offer the kind of standard financial um, facilities which banks have offered. Now, maybe customers want to do that in a different way, but I don't think we know that yet. There's a bit like saying, and, and you know, because you may be right about the hub is going to be the brand here, and, and in mm. fact, effectively, the bank, the old bank, if you like, simply becomes a pipe that is supplying that big volume stuff because it's bringing in. But to do that, it's got to have a balance sheet. It's got to have things on both sides of those balance sheets. And managing that, I tell you, that's, it is a challenge to, uh, it is a challenge of banks, it is a challenge to run both bringing in the deposits and moving them out again in a way which moves you towards positive profitability at the same time and to begin to move towards that scale. Um, but... I think it's in doing so, thinking about how the customer feels about the advice that you've offered, 
the kind of way that you're managing that product, the way that you can renew a mortgage, the retention aspects to that. I think all of these are just equally aspects of retail banking, which take you beyond the sort of hub and spoke model because it's a question of who you have the relationship with. So I completely agree that traditionally, and the banks that I've been involved in traditionally, probably did have a much more product uh, approach to things. And particularly in the latter period of the, the end of the 20th century, certainly incentivized their staff to have a product approach to things. So, you know, the, the, the way that the deals were being structured, the way that you got your bonuses was very much around product. But that's not always been the case. And in fact, I've got a building society background as well, where in building society, you were definitely trying to think about how you made fair offers to both your investors, your depositors, and the people who were borrowing from you. So that question of what is the way that you want to have a relationship with your customer, I agree is at the heart of it. But I'm not sure that we actually yet know how customers want to evolve their relationship with their financial um, partners. And that's not just about how those transactions make, are made the least painlessly, but also what is the way in which I get something out of that and the choices that I make. So at Atom, our oldest customer actually just had her 100th birthday. We sent her a birthday card. So yeah, when we've, our, our uh, average depositor is 50-something. Our average uh, borrower is 30-something um, because those are the sorts of people that are trying to save and are, and are trying to borrow after all. So when we've got a range of customers right across the, the entire piece, all of whom are giving us good customer ratings. And what we need to do now is to use that, the information that we're getting as a result of that to improve the way that we can make people more comfortable with financial decisions and improve the way that they can think about that. And so I think my fundamental problem with what Tom says is the problem of saying um, it's not necessarily that I just want this stuff to be taken away from me because I'm not at all convinced from the work that we do with our customers that they do want that all those decisions to be taken away from them. They want actually to be engaged in them and actually the financial education that we need to do to help people to make to, to understand the decisions that they're making I think is quite important. And the risk of not doing that is you effectively end up with a whole load of dumbed-down customers, and in fact, competition then becomes undermined by that process. So the thing that I'm, one of the other things that I'm particular, the other points, so getting educated customers is actually what we should all be about, and making sure that customers are able to and can be engaged with the decisions and the financial decisions, which have long-term consequences for them, which mortgage you've got, which savings products you have, are you going to get a pension at the end of the day? All of these are, are big, fundamental, long-term decisions. And that's why trying to educate the customer, but also trying to make sure the regulator doesn't get too much in the way of that, is one of the things that I think we, we need to think about a bit really carefully. So I'm quite concerned about the proposition that you can't have stability and competition. Because I think that uh, you, know, you, you can be stable when you're dead. That's true. You can, have stability, you can have stability when everything is uncompetitive, 
and you're all, everybody is offered exactly the same product because that's the only one that, that ticks all the regulators' boxes. And I think as an industry, and including the regulator, I think we've got to think really much harder about allowing um, more, 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 um, more banks, whatever, whatever form the bank is taking, so I think it's too hung up on, on what is a bank and what is not a bank, but allowing that competition to be more successful and not being quite so worried about as soon as we let anything happen, if anything conceivably goes wrong, it's all going to be death and disaster. That doesn't mean, of course, that you know, credit control needs to be flung out of the window or that uh, you, know, you, you need to have proper control and capital requirements and so on and so forth. The, the balance sheet aspect of that and those controls remain very important. But it is to say that it's when you begin to think about the risk-taking, that risk can, is also about how you make a better service for customers and you begin to explore how the customer should be able to do something different and react in a different way and not just assume that you know. And I think we're all, we can all be guilty in our way of assuming that we know and finding out is, is non-trivial. It's a bit like the problem. Nobody knew they needed an iPhone before there was an iPhone. So some of that is actually the, the ability to, to go out there and try to do things in a different way, which is including the hub or, or whether we want to call it a marketplace or not. It's including, but it particularly includes being able to know what your customers and find out more about your customers and being able to feed that back to them in a way that enables them to take advantage of it. So we do a, we're doing a lot of work on what we're calling the digital twin so modelling how the bank interacts with its customers and indeed with the outside world. So as, as uh, Andrew said, I'm an economist by background, so I know that I don't know what's going to happen in the future. <laughs> as I spent long years doing, being, um, telling people what was going to happen and being uniformly wrong. <laughs> uh, so it's one of the reasons I stopped doing it. It felt immoral, um, particularly you know, charging people for a forecast, which you knew was going to be wrong. Was, it seemed a little bit, um, a, a little bit uh, immoral. So... Being robust to trying to help your customers and, and being robust to the future, things the future might throw at them. Thinking about how the bank itself can be robust and what the new, what different modelling strategies can do to think about that, those potential futures for you and for your customers. Making sure that you can feed that information back to them about what risks they may be facing. Uh, is that is the kind of thing that I think that banking needs to do. But what I differ from Tom about is that that does not take the problem off your table. In fact, what I'm trying to do is put the financial problem onto my customer's table so that they become better able to cope with the issues that they face. And it's that information management and who gets best at it, but at the same time can be imaginative about it that I think is going to mean that there will be that those are the people and those are the institutions and organisations that will win. And it may be that some of the incumbents will be able to do that. Evidence so far is pretty mixed on that proposition, yeah. um, but I don't want to criticise anybody. Um, so I, and I think, therefore, that we, as newcomers and new kids on the block, but with a banking background and wanting to do this differently, uh, I think that that gives us a fighting chance of being a big kid on the block.
Excellent. Can I just make one question, one question of you? Do you think that this is really a demographic issue? I mean, you mentioned that I was very surprised your, your average depositor is in his or her 50s. I imagine that that's not true of Monzo's clients. And I wonder if many of the things that you're, thinking, you're talking about, in, in a way, putting the problem back on the table of, the, of, your, of your customers, as opposed to taking the problem away from your customers, reflects a very different demographic that you're appealing to with Atom and Tom is appealing to with Monzo. Well, our demographic is right across the whole, the whole, the whole, of, the whole of life, if you see what I mean. Um, so we have depositors who, who are younger. I, I don't like this millennial term, but, um, but you we, did we say, cover everybody. You did say that, I mean, you've obviously done work on it. Um, what, is, what is the mean, uh, the mean age of the depositor? Well, you said so in, in your 50s. Early 50s. Yeah. Yeah which I imagine is very different from the mean age of the Monzo depositor. And does that affect their attitude to finance, to money, to the problems associated with it? I'm curious. Eight twenties. I, I would have, I, I think I agree with you, and I think we're saying the same thing. Mm. I think we want to take the, not the decision away from people, but the administration of that decision away from people. And so to come to the customer and say, there are broadly three choices. Which one would you like? And they go, that one. And we go, great, we'll take care of the rest of it, rather than having to wade through 50 pages of form. So I think banks often confuse that, the paperwork and the administration, which I don't think anyone wants to do, with informed decision-making, which I totally agree with. So the average balance that we have compared the average balance of the, of the bigger banks... I don't have the Barclays numbers, so I can't answer that, <laughs> I'm afraid. I have them roughly. Um, the, on a personal current account, uh, the, so the average throughput on a debit card, let's say, monthly okay, spend... That's a slightly different question. Yeah, go on. So throughput's about £650 on the average debit card. The average residual balance, as measured just before payday, around 2500 For younger people, it's more like 1800 For older people, it's more like three and a half, four thousand pounds averaged across the industry. For Monzo, it's much lower. Uh, residual balance, probably around 500 On savings accounts, for us, it's about... £10,000 if you have an interest-bearing savings account, I guess with you it would be, be much bigger, yeah. I think, as far as I know, we're the same as the rest of the industry. So, the, you, know, you, go up to the, you go up to the 85 that's covered by FSCS, and above that, people tend to tail off. Um, we started down the savings and, and the deposits and, the, uh, and, and mortgages and borrowing, and we do business lending as well, incidentally. It's not quite as big as, as the mortgage offer. And every time that we've looked at the, the PCA part of this, then they are very expensive to set up and very hard to make money out of until you hit those scale matters. So we've come at it from a different direction than the direction Tom comes at it. So watch this space. John, John, John Hitchens. Sure. Well, I've, we've been described as niche already. We prefer the word specialist. But... Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think um, <clears throat> the, the point about product versus customer is that the big banks are extremely good at delivering plain vanilla products. I don't think they're crappy, but they're just very standardised. And woe betide you if you want something that isn't quite what they do, because they can't accommodate you. And so the, the rationale, Aldermore's rationale, is in fact to find ni niches if you want to go back to that word, but area, areas of the market which are underserved by the big banks because the, they are too difficult for the banks to get to using their machines. So the products either require, they either require more complex underwriting 
or they require more product features or, it, that are, or each deal is more specialised. So our main areas are mortgages, where we essentially concentrate on, uh, in owner-occupied mortgages, we concentrate on first-time buyers and we concentrate on later-life lending. Um, and, in, uh, and we also have a big buy-to-let book, again, tending to focus more on multiple landlords um, who are more difficult to lend to um, from an underwriting point of view than the mom and than the sort of uh, what's often called the dinner party landlord. Um, <laughs> the, um, and we have a big savings business. And then we are also a we also have a large um, small business lending business, which is primarily an asset finance and invoice finance business. Um, so what 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 we find is that uh, we can't compete with the big banks on plain vanilla product because they have one massive advantage. It's not, IR, it's not actually IRB or capital. Uh, at the end of the day, it is the scale of cheap money they are able to raise using their operation, the size of their balance sheets. That cost, their cost of funds, we cannot, we cannot put a, a mortgage out there to someone who is re, who's an existing borrower, existing homeowner, refinancing their mortgage, um, good credit, good credit history, etc. We just can't compete because we can't get the funds at a cheap enough rate to match the prices that Barclays or HSBC or Lloyds are, or Halifax are, are offering in the market. However, in the sectors we're in, the big banks are not active because you can't, they can't get enough people to put through their big engines. Um, and so I think that this, this are, there, there are lots of... Um, Lots of banks like us and Atom who are very, very customer focused, and I would say genuinely customer focused, because we start from what the customer need wants and needs, uh, rather than what we happen to have built. Um, but the question is how big we can grow before we start to lose that. Um, and certainly, the big banks don't stand a chance, in my view, of ever becoming customer centric, uh, because of the scale of their infrastructure, which means they just have to. They can be very nice to you in the branch or very nice to you online. At the end of the day, if you don't want what they offer, if, you, if what they offer uh, is not what you want, tough, basically. Um, I once had a, I once took out a, a, I once arranged a mortgage facility with one of the big banks, and I said I haven't actually bought the property yet. I just wanted to get this as a buy for a buy to let loan. I just want to get the facility set up, but don't send me the money yet because I don't want to start paying you until I bought the property. Uh, the money arrived the next day. Yeah. Your mortgage has been approved. We've sent you the money. Great. Um, so that, that, I think, is that. And, and actually, that cheap cost of funds is a huge competitive advantage for them um, in there. The other interesting thing is that the market, when you're in our space, the market is already pretty disaggregated. There's a lot of, play, a lot of players. And actually... A large part of our business is, to, is our customer, our, tr our, our customer from the point of view of the person who buys our, buys our product is a broker, not the, ultimate, not the end user. Um, uh, and so actually, and that's true in asset finance, it's true in, uh, certainly true in the buy-to-let mortgage market, and it's true in a lot of the mortgage space where a mortgage is such a big life decision that people, and there are so many products out there, that people want advice, and they want advice, proper advice from a you know, they actually feel more comfortable if that comes from a human being, for the moment at least. That may be a generational thing, although uh, I've noticed it's, you know, we noticed that's true among our first-time buyers as well, um, that uh, they'll go to a broker. What the broker then, what, what we deliver to the broker 
is something that is certain and fast. So they know, because we spend a lot of time explaining to them what we will do and what we won't do, uh, and what bells and whistles they can... And they can, if they've got an additional bell and whistle, they know we'll actually listen and come back and say, that's one we can do or that's one we can't do. Um, but they want to... So the brokers, again, they're like, their customers are like Tom. They're not actually looking for the best possible price. They want something that is fair and quick and certain so they can get on with their life. And Tom is a perfect Aldermore business customer, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, from that point of view. And, and so you, yes, we, can, we have digital ways of doing that. But at the end of the day, we are getting additional margin for additional work in, in providing much more bespoke product than the, than the industrial machines can. Um, we're a bit, in some times, it feels like being one of the early mammals in a world of dinosaurs because you spend a lot of time worrying about whether one of the dinosaurs is going to tread on you. <clears throat> um, and we know that you know, at any one time, one of them could decide to come in and occupy one of our niches, which is, again is we believe we need to be in several niches to minimise that risk. So, and if they redeploy cheaper costs of funds into our space, that's going to get very uncomfortable. But the main thing is that they actually find it very difficult to do that because of the, because of the rigidity of their, of their infrastructure and the need to put volume through their systems. They also, of course, have huge capital, which means they can buy anything. Um, and you could argue we've been bought by a dinosaur uh, because we're owned by one of South Africa's largest retail banks. Um, but um, it's in a different country, so it doesn't feel like being owned by a dinosaur. <laughs> um, the other thing about, I think the other thing is about this market is this retail banking and retail finance is an area that governments will not leave alone. Um, and so um, if you get a new model and it gets scale, it'll get regulated in a much tougher way. It just will, because uh, that's their reaction. Um, and so some things that are, they're, they're quite happy to tolerate while they're quite small, but as soon as you start to get scale, they will regulate it. And woe betide you if you're, in a if you're in a sector of the market which they suddenly decide to change public policy on, as all of us who lend in the buy-to-let market have found out recently, um, when they've made it much harder to do that, much more, and, and put the capital cost up doing that. Fortunately, they've done that equally for the big banks as, as, as to us. Um, we are going for IRB because ultimately we have to do that to survive in that market yeah. because that is the other big pricing difference the big banks have that they, on some products um, of which buy-to-let mortgages is, is becoming a major one now, uh, they, can, uh, they have a much lower cost of funds, uh, sorry, lost cost of capital than we do. Um, I think the, the other point that... Um, so for me... Tom's idea of the hub and spoke is it's interesting as to whether that might be result in ag that might result from aggregation rather than disaggregation because the broker market is incredibly fragmented and incredibly specialised. There's been some aggregation in, within it, but it's tended to be in in line. So people who are mortgage brokers only broke mortgages; they don't do asset finance and vice versa. Partly regulatory because of the because they're regulated markets and the time and effort it takes to know all the rules in mortgages mean that you don't have time really to learn a different product. Um, but there is an interesting thing as to whether somebody might start to put them together. But it comes back. I think the key issue with the hub and spoke is if you want it to be to run across the industry, you've got to sort out what the regulatory relationships are 
and so what and who the re, and who the regulator thinks owns the customer because it doesn't matter who you think does but who the regulator thinks does is very important um, and also um, <clears throat> on, on <clears throat> and also you've got to deal with the uh, the question about how do you provide advice or are you basically just doing a cut down version of confused.com um, and basically pre-selecting a number of plain vanilla products that customers can go in and they'll have a sort of your own kite mark that says you know these are monzo approved um, and people will trust monzo and therefore they don't need to work they don't need to go through the incredibly confusing tables that confused.com and its competitors put up to try and help you compare products which whenever I've looked there I just get even more confused by <laughs> um, and so I think that that's it I think the hub and spoke is very I think we may well end up that way but I think there are some very big uh, barriers that are that need to be dealt with that are not technology solutions before it will get there Okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on to Jason because I do want us to have 10 minutes at the end or perhaps we can run over a little bit, quarter of an hour or so. Uh, so, Jason, how do, you, how do you view all of this um, as a millennial? As, uh, yes, uh, just about, but yes, I am a millennial. <laughs> um, so, um, I'd like to uh, start off um, uh, as an engineer. Uh, um, I, I would like to start off by taking issue with something that Mike said right at the top of this, which is that technology is not a differentiator. Uh, I'm going to argue that is not only is technology is a differentiator, it is the differentiator. Um, it is the differentiator that underlies all the other differentiators. Now, um, he started off by Mike started off by saying that um, if you, if you get on for, get on a plane and it flies you to uh, Dusseldorf um, rather than Munich or whichever two cities you're you know one you want to fly to one you don't and um, they say but we've got a great app you know you're not going to like it and this he uses as an example of you know well technology isn't really the differentiator there. But if it's the technology that's gone wrong and has flown the plane to Dusseldorf and not Munich, then technology is the differentiator. If the wings fall off a plane, you're not going to use that plane or any planes like it to fly on. So technology there is the differentiator, and it might not be the thing that the customer is immediately looking for. The customer might not be there saying, you know what, I really want great technology backing this. But they sure as hell aren't going to stay with you if the technology isn't there. So you need that technology uh, in the background. You need to use that technology to leverage all of the great things that we've been talking about. Let's start with how disruptors uh, and challenger banks disrupt things. I think that for many years, uh, banks competed in a few different vectors. And what challenger banks have come along and done that is different is that they have added new lines of competition, new things that banks didn't compete on beforehand, and now our lines of competition are things that people will look for. For example, um, when you lost your card, your debit card, um, if you had a current account, uh, prior to challenger banks, um, you had two options. One was to ignore it, which was a security risk, 
and the other one was to pick up the phone and uh, try and remember that super special secret number that you only dialed once every so often or may have never dialed before to cancel your card. Remember that password that you set up five months ago, which was based on your mother's maiden name and a dog that you had when you were five, and then go through and say, my card has been lost or stolen, and they'll say, fine, thank you, sir or madam, we'll cancel it for you. And then you found it down the back of the sofa, but it was too late because the card was cancelled and then you had to wait for a week to get another one, during which time you were sitting there going, well, how do I pay for things again? Do I have to walk into a bank with a checkbook? What, what is it I have to do now? So then the challenger banks came along and said, no, what you can do is you can go into the app and you can freeze your card. You can stop it working temporarily. It won't work if anyone picks it up and tries to use it, but if you find it again you can uncancel it. And if it turns out that it really is lost, you can press a button in the app which will cancel the card, order you a new physical one, give you a new virtual one immediately, which you can then provision into your mobile wallet immediately and go and spend on your uh, mobile phone um, as if your card was not lost or stolen in the first place. Then, Challenger Banks offered that, and lo and behold, what do I see when walking into the station in the morning? Barclays, oh my goodness, are suddenly offering you the ability to freeze your card. Wow, amazing. Wherever did they get that idea? Um, so what this shows is, right, Barclays could have offered that any time in the past. They could have been offering this feature 10, 15 years ago. But did they? No because it wasn't a line of competition. It wasn't something that people were competing on for current accounts. And suddenly challenger banks come along and go, ah, but we want to serve our customers. We want to give our customers what they want. We want to really solve their problems for them. So we come along and we start offering that, and then everyone goes, ah, okay, well, we'll suddenly start to try and offer that as well. <coughs> we also differentiate ourselves on the um, hub spoke model, which I'm not going to go into because that's been talked about a lot already. But that's the other thing we differentiate on, this idea that we can easily connect you from the hubs to the spokes. And it's this ease of connection that's key. Because if you have to, you know, spend a long time connecting from the hub to the <coughs> spoke, if it's very difficult, if it's not just the touch of a button, then the hub spoke model falls apart. It's only if the, if the spokes are really connected to the hub that this really makes a difference. And both of these, this ability to offer new and innovative features and to rapidly go through them and the ability to connect the spokes up to the hub depends upon you having good technology. The ability to leverage all of that information that was being talked about, that information and using it, using it to benefit your customers, that requires technology. That requires you to have modern software architecture where all the systems are connected up. Uh, all the data is, uh, is, you know, you have the ability to get data out of one system into another system. You have the ability to connect your systems as a bank to another set of systems at uh, a, hub, a spoke provider, another financial provider, in an easy and safe manner and a reliable manner as well. And the ability so that, you know, customers will trust giving their information from the hub to the spoke. And they won't go, ah, I think this is a bit dodgy here. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to trust that. And you have to be able to do all of that while also giving informed consent to the customer about what they're doing. So, um, incumbent banks, 
the dinosaurs. They have this very low cost of funds. They have huge amounts of money. So won't they just be able to do this? Uh, Barclays was able to snap their fingers and rustle up a feature after, you know, Monzo and us had thought of it first, but never mind. Um, won't they be able to outpace the challenger banks and just, you know, start competing on this more and more? Well, let me let, let you into the dirty little secret of being an engineer behind the scenes, the people who actually get to see the pipe work, not literally, but, you know, the pipe work of the cloud and so on. Um, as an engineer, um, I uh, receive uh, large amounts of messages on LinkedIn from various incumbent banks saying, hey, Jason, you're an engineer. We're looking for people like you to come and work at our new hub, um, our, our new, you know, our new uh, innovative lab somewhere. Don't worry, it's not in the main office. You won't have to wear a suit and tie, Jason. You can come in and it'll be like Google. There'll be ping pong tables and bean bags and a pinball machine. It'll be fantastic. We pay competitive salaries. Don't worry, it's in a WeWork space somewhere on the Strand. We've hidden it from Group IT. Um, and they will message, you know, I've got messages like that from, you know, pretty much all of the incumbent banks saying, we've set up this new thing. Don't worry. Don't worry, please. There aren't any product managers. Um, <laughs> The problem that big banks have noticed is that the, their way of attempting to copy um, the challenger banks is not to try and reform themselves, is not to try and reform this, we've got a big machine that does vanilla offerings, ka-clunk, uh, machine that they built in the, the 70s and 80s and now do not know how it works and do not know how to maintain, but know that it makes them a lot of money and so they're not touching that. So they can't innovate, they can't change it. What they're doing is they're going, right, let's keep that where it is, making all the money, and start again. And that will work fine until it starts making money, at which point Group IT will go, well, you know what, really, really they're doing this cloud database stuff, and that's brilliant. But, you know, we'd save so much more money if they put it onto our Oracle system over here. Quick, let's get them onto the Oracle system that we've, you know, uh, bought because it costs a lot, therefore it must be good. And we'll shove them on that and force them into that and force them to follow our rules and procedures, which mean that we deploy code once every three months uh, when the moon is in alignment with the stars and we have got sign-off from everyone from the CFO to, uh, you know, John Lennon uh, on a piece of paper saying that we may release now and then we release and watch it and go, is it okay? Well, maybe not. We better roll back, actually. Um, one of the, uh, in the great uh, TSB uh, IT uh, cavalcade of um, unfortunateness that happened uh, recently. One of the things that was boasted about by their IT people beforehand um, was that they were releasing two and a half thousand man years of code when they, they did their big release that uh, caused them so many problems. When I hear, heard that, my reaction was to uh, say, well, I would, if I heard someone boasting about that, I would hand in my notice immediately and run away. You know, we, we at Starling get worried if we have a day, a working day, where we do not release code into production. That is worrying because we don't, we, we're building up too much code. We don't know what we're going to release. We don't know, we can't read through all the code and go, yep, that all looks fine, we're going to release it. And the reason we're able to do that, the reason we're able to release so often 
And the really reason we're able to trust that code is, that is going into production is what it should be, is because we have built things on this modern technology stack. And that's how we're able to offer all these features. That's how we're able to connect up the spokes to our hub uh, in a safe and secure and reliable manner. And that is why I am not worried about the, uh, the, the dinosaurs. They will take a long time to die, but their options are to turn themselves into mammals, which will require them essentially ditching their old technology policies and turning themselves into something that looks like a challenger bank, or they will remain dinosaurs, and then they will get hit by an asteroid. Thank you. And um, um, the interesting thing, of course, about Visa and MasterCard is that they were not created inside the bank. Again, it's like the, all these other things. You have to go off and do it somewhere else for it to work. And the other really interesting example in that, is, of course, is First Direct. So First Direct, again, it was Midland, if anybody remembers Midland Bank, um, part, became part of HSBC, but they decided they couldn't do something new. They, they, uh, actually, it was an early example of, of a new hub. Let's go out there and we'll do something different, telephone banking. Um, and, of course, when it got successful and became profitable, it's the absolute poster child for your story. Everybody sort of pulled it back because it, partly it was going to cannibalise the existing model and partly because, uh, you know, this whole process is and we must have the rules and, and, and so on and so forth. So it is extremely difficult, and you can see this not just in this industry, but in every industry. The, when the incumbent is making a lot of money out of its incumbency, then it is not going to kill the goose that, that apparently la um, lays the golden eggs. And it can only change in outside. It can only come in from outside. And the people who can stop that is partly the resources of the incumbents and partly the regulators. Mike and... John, I assume you both want to come in on that. Mike, do you dissent from that, from that view? I mean, both of you, Mike and John, have seen the banking industry over a long period and watched it very closely, as it has either uh, snaffled up other people's good ideas or screwed them up. Um, well, let me, let me kick off. I mean, I, I, um, Jason's point right at the beginning about the technology being a differentiator, I guess the point is that the... The, the ability to emulate technology is, is my very point. Even though you're obviously a bit sore about the fact that Barclays nicked your idea, but they did, and they repeated it and, and got it into the market quite quickly. So that, that is my very point. I don't think it is a differentiator. It is, it is necessary, but it is it, it very necessary, uh, but it's not sufficient. Um, but the, the point, I mean, the, you know, I think what we're looking at here is the shape of the industry over the next few years. You know, it has been disrupted. Well and truly, I mean the, the 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 whatever you want to call them, the challenges, new entrants, whatever, is is changing the landscape. Uh, the point is that I still maintain that the existing banks are in a strong position to adapt and adopt in whatever whatever shape or form that will be. Um, I'm not I'm not qualified to talk about the you know the internal workings of 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 all of the IT systems, but I do broadly take your point. They're old. Um, they're powerful, um, but they're very sort of process-driven. Um, oh, sorry. Well, I think the the, the the bank, the the big bank behaviour of sitting on sitting on old practices that make them a lot of money. They've always done that. I mean, the most obvious one um, from a few years ago it was uh, the length of time it took them to admit that technology meant they could clear checks in 24 hours rather than five days. 
because what yeah. they're actually doing was clearing them in 24 hours, but sitting on the money for five days. Mm. Um, so they've always behaved like that. And I think the challenges are really valuable in opening, in showing what can be done. Mm. The moment the idea becomes something that is deployable in the mainstream, they'll either buy you or copy you. Mm. Um, and, that's and, competition. And that's competition. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but our experience is that there are lots of, I mean, it's such a huge market, they can't do everything. Um, which leaves places for us to find areas where they're not operating properly and actually probably not interested in operating pr properly. And then we can make a good living on the back of that. But we're never going to grow to be the size at which we we're a direct threat to them. I I'd agree on the superficial stuff. So the freezing card, the categorising your spend, it's very easy to replicate that. And it is superficial and even the other banks will get there given two or three more years. I think the thing that they cannot replicate is the, we've talked about it just now, the, this cannibalization threat, this idea that their fundamental business model is so profitable and to get, they've sort of reached a local maximum. There is a, a greater maximum out there, but to get that they have to go through this deep, deep trough. And I don't think any of them are willing to sacrifice the, the goose that lays a golden egg to get there. That's hard to replicate. I, I, I would say that banks are in, incumbent banks are in danger of having a Kodak moment. Um, Kodak, uh, the story of Kodak is that they had the plans to make a digital camera in the late 80s, early 90s, and they squashed it. They didn't go ahead with it because they were making too much money on selling the developing fluid for film. And they suffered and paid the price for it. So having this goose that laid the golden egg uh, that you don't know how to maintain is very at risk. All it takes is a regulatory change to come in, which you can't really adapt well to with your code. And, um, you know, things start getting disrupted or uh, um, you start finding yourself in real trouble. The problem with technology is it's not static. You can't just buy the technology and then have it. Uh, technology, uh, especially software technology, is an ever-growing and developing thing, especially if you want to uh, offer more, you know, more services to the customer and so on. But you buy so, the team as well, right? You yeah. buy the tech and the smart programmers. Yes. So you, you buy the, you buy the smart people. So you now, you've now got the people who know to operate the tech and the tech. And then Group IT comes in and says, can you please put this all on Oracle? And all the technology people up, you know, click print on their CV and walk out the door. And now you've lost the people and you've got a whole load of technology that you've bought, which you don't know how to operate. So the, the problem with just coming in and buying, buying it is that you need to be able to maintain the technological culture that's there as well. And that is possible if you are willing and able, if you have strong enough executive to say, no, this really is at arm's reach and no one is to touch it. But as soon as someone comes in and says, right, well, we want to try and integrate this with the rest of our systems, then you will find that, um, that this, this, technology, this doesn't work because all of your technology culture floods out the door. And without the culture of technology backing it, the technology itself is pretty worthless. Okay, we are, we've run over. Uh, I want to ask one question of the panel, um, and that is, can you actually make a future without controlling the personal current account? I mean, it's come up a few times, and I really don't know if cha any challenger bank really has a long-term future unless they can offer that. Let me just ask across the, across the panel. Mike first. Um, 
I, th I think it stands at the moment. The personal current account is, uh, you know, is the pivotal is the pivotal sort of relationship product. And at the, the amount of time that I've been working in the sector, there has been discussion from time to time. You know, is it the mortgage product? The answer is definitely not the mortgage product, given the disintermediation brokers have brought about in that market. So, uh, you know, can a challenger operate without the PCA? I, I don't know, but I but I think that it is a pivotal product for sure. John, um, well, we operate without one. Very successfully, no intention of building one. But we are, as I said earlier, we're specialists, not a generalist bank. Um, I think there is a really interesting thing as to whether uh, the somebody will be able to make a combination of payment services, directives, and open banking work to create something that is a payment account, but not a current account. Um, and whether that actually... So in other words, whether the current account itself might die... Yep. Um, and be replaced by something new. And don't, I don't think anyone in the challenger space has done that yet, but I think a lot of people are thinking about it. Right. When you, yeah. when you talk about the B word, I also think keep thinking about the O word. Open banking is, yeah. is yeah. The, sort of the thing that we've never really yet got our, our, our minds around. Tom? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I don't know if the hub has to be a bank at all. Um, certainly in the future it may not be. I, th I think that absolutely there's plenty of space for these spoke products who manufacture balance sheet products and then distribute through other people's platforms and channels. Absolutely. Bridget. The, the classic incumbent bank rests upon that foundation of running the PCAs, and that, that's clear from the models that they've got. It's not obvious to me, and that's one of the reasons why we delayed having one, it's not obvious to me that you need a PCA with all the, the, the stuff that goes alongside that in order to be a successful bank. And I, I am, I've been thinking a lot about how you separate out the personal, the payment services bit, you know, the bit that I used to do by going along and getting cash out and then using the cash during the week to make my purchases, that is a separate sort of thing to actually looking after somebody's money, which is what the other bit of the current account does. They are separate. Jason, uh, you can be a specialist spoke without needing a PCA, I think. Uh, as for a generalist hub, I'm not sure. Um, yes, certainly at the moment, but in the future, that might very well change. Okay, last, last word from each of you. Describe the UK financial, uh, the UK retail finance sector in 2025. Running back along the table, Jason gets to go first. Uh, what does it look like? Uh, looks like a market that is um, in flux much more than it is now. So there's a lot more challenging uh, from the challengers. Um, some of the big tech players might be starting to sniff round, perhaps. The incumbents will still be there in five years' time. Um, there's no doubt about that. They will take a long time to disappear. But a number of us will still be there. And there will be, there'll be beginning to be a little bit more clarity around the direction of travel for this industry as a whole. But there'll still be, I agree with Jason, there's still going to be a lot of flux out there. And customers will still be thinking about how, the customer view will still be evolving, mm. that to which we need to respond. We haven't, I don't think the customers are there yet in, a, in the sense of us understanding what they really want and them understanding what they really want. Tom, I think in five or six years, as a customer, you have a single place where you can go and see all of your money 
wherever it sits and have peace of mind that it's well managed. You don't have to do any painful administration. And the two or three choices you need to make in a year are presented to you in a simple to understand way with all the information required. And you say, I'll have that one, please. And your hub goes away and says, great, I'll make that happen. And you get to live your life without having to worry about all of this crap that people call banking today. <laughs> John? Um, I don't think that'll happen quite as quickly. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think you one the, the major feature in the, in the change in the market will be a lot more partnerships um, between conventional banks, uh, not not necessarily incumbents, but maybe more of the sort of more conventional end of the challenger market and, and the technology companies. And the final word, Mac? I agree on the partnership point that John's made. In fact, I'd go a stage further and say, yes, same number of incumbents, probably a fewer challenges, but I think some consolidation, some partnerships, some sharing of uh, technology development. So consolidation for sure. And we'll all be speaking Chinese and we'll all be banking with Alipay. Uh, can, <laughs> I, can I thank LIBF for hosting this? Can I thank all of you for coming? But can I in particular thank all of our panellists? Many, many, many. Thank you for listening. You can find out more information about attending our talks and events at www.libf.ac.uk forward slash events. Want to get involved? Contact us at podcast at libf.ac.uk.